thank you very much and, and welcome to this session at Cambridge. Today we're going to be talking about the future of work and some have argued that we are in the midst of another technological revolution, uh, every bit as momentous as the industrial revolution, at least in terms of the potential impact on the way we work, our forms of work, and the potential for disruption at least um, is huge. That disruption, of course, can be both good and bad. And we're going to be hearing from our four excellent speakers today uh, their views on what's going to happen in the future of work. Um, we have a fantastic lineup, and between them, we have two sociologists, we have a writer, we have a computer scientist, and importantly, I think we also have, if I may dare to say, members of the new generation, the younger generation, coming through facing this new world of work. Um, and I think it's important that we have that perspective. We're also particularly grateful to Madalena Sofia for stepping in as one of our speakers. Uh, sadly, uh, couldn't make the event for personal reasons. So we're grateful to you. Thank you. Um, we're going to start with uh, Alex Wood. Alex is a researcher at the Oxford Inter Internet Institute um, at the University of Oxford. Uh, but he's one of us, so to speak. He received his PhD here at Cambridge. Um, and his research focuses particularly on the changing nature of labor, the gig economy, how it's transforming labor relations. He's done work, really interesting work, on insecure uh, forms of work and zero hours contracts. And he's actually in the wonderful position of finishing two books, not just one, two books, on the gig economy and precarious scheduling, which sounds interesting. So Alex is going to be talking about the on-demand economy. He's going to be talking about the impact of digital platforms, um, and in particular focusing on uh, labour relations. We also then are going to hear from Letitia Vital. Uh, she's uh, a speaker and a writer on the future of work and consumption. She teaches future of work classes, which I did think sounded fun. You've got to tell us about that. Um, future of work classes at Science Po and Université Paris Dauphin in Paris. Um, she's a co-author of a book on the social and institutional transformations induced by the digital. And in 2016, she founded Cadre Noir, which is a research and marketing firm specializing in the future of work and HR issues. And Letitia is going to be speaking about unbundling of jobs, uh, freelancing, and the future of work generally. Hatitia Ganesh is a university senior lecturer at the University of Cambridge, but she's in the Department of Computer Science and Technology. And her research interests are effective computing and social signal processing. And her research really lies at the crossroads of multiple disciplines, and interestingly, including machine learning and human-robot uh, interaction. She's president of the Association for the Advancement of Effective Computing, and she's going to be talking about the positive potential impact, at least, of social robots and addressing some of the myths um, and the need for good information on this to make people appreciate the potential benefits of this technology. And Madalena Sophia has recently obtained her PhD in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Her doctoral research has focused on job quality uh, in Central American countries, and she's taking a, a multi-dimensional and capabilities perspective on that. She's uh, undertaking a project in the Department of Sociology at the moment, uh, sponsored by the Police Dependence Trust, looking at working conditions and trauma exposure in UK policing. And Madeleine is going to be speaking about her work on job quality, but also taking the perspective uh, from a Latin American uh, country. So without further ado from me, um, I'd like to invite Alex to come and tell us about his work.
So hello everybody, I'm uh, Alex Wood from the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford and I'm going to be talking about some research I've been doing with my colleague Willy Ledonvita on new sources of insecurity but also new sources of resistance in what is increasingly a platform age. And so when people think of the gig economy, they often think of Uber or Deliveroo. So what we refer to as the, the local gig economy. So the transactions happening through an app on somebody's phone, but then the service is being delivered locally. You're physically getting into a, a, an Uber, into a car, and being driven somewhere. But surveys would suggest, actually, in the UK, similar numbers of people are working in the gig economy doing freelance types of uh, gig economy work. So things like translation, transcription, graphic design, programming, uh, digital marketing, data entry. And there, we refer to this as the remote gig economy because what they're doing is digital labour. And that means that not only is the transaction happening through a platform, a similar platform to an Uber, the Uber platform, but also the, the work can also be delivered via that platform because what's being uh, provided is the, uh, is the digital manipulation of um, information. So people are able to uh, work from home, work remotely. And so similar, even though we focus on Deliveroo and Uber, similar numbers of people are actually doing this remote form of freelance gig economy work. And so I'm going to be talking about my research last year where I did uh, ethnographic research into community and collective organization amongst these remote gig economy uh, workers. So I spent a year in, the, in uh, researching this community and organization, so in the Philippines, in Manila, but also in the, in the US, in California, and in New York and in London. So this is a global phenomenon, a global workforce. So we wanted to capture people's experiences both in the global south and in the uh, global north. And so we interviewed 70 uh, workers, but also did uh, observation of dozens of community meetups, uh, community events to try and get a real understanding of what sort of community exists in the gig economy. Are people just atomized? So I think what's kind of central to the gig economy, both the local gig economy, so Uber, but also the remote gig, gig, gig economy, is the automation of core management far, uh, tasks. So uh, in particular, the automation of the allocation of tasks to workers, but also, most importantly, the automation of control. So you don't need a manager sat uh, behind an Uber driver telling them exactly what to do, where to go, uh, instead an algorithm is controlling that worker. And this algorithmic control is usually based around rating and reputation systems. So if anybody's got an Uber here, they will have uh, then been asked afterwards to provide that, that driver a rating out of five. If the Uber driver over usually a three-week period gets below 4.7, uh, 4.4, depending on which city, they'll then be uh, disciplined, they'll be told they need to improve, and eventually they'll be deactivated, so fired. And so in the remote gig economy, it works in a similar way. And so here, I don't know how clearly you can see it, but what I've done is search for a worker to do data entry. And then the algorithm has combined uh, the, the rate that the person's willing to work for, the number of hours they've done, the numbers of jobs they've completed, but most importantly, this job, job success score, this blue bar here, 
which is based on a number of different ratings that they've been given by clients. And so the platform's algorithms have then put together that information to create this rating. And obviously, the people who come are ranked highest, the customer is going to think, these are the best workers, I'm going to hire those workers. So this platform reputation is central across the gig economy. So for example, one worker told me how when I was 100% uh, job success, I was getting loads of job invites. And then when, it when, when it's 94%, it drops significantly. I was getting maybe 15 job, job invites a week, and then it drops to like two job invites a week. But the fact that this reputation is based on these platforms, you only have this job success score. So Judy at the top here, she's done 17,000 hours of work on this platform and got this 98% job success score that only exists on the platform. The same as our Uber driver's uh, reputation only, only exists on the platform. It means that people become dependent on the platform. So Judy at the top here, she can't take that, that reputation and go onto another platform or start working without the platform because she'll lose that reputation. And this dependence on the platforms leads to a new form of precarity where people are, uh, have these very precarious reputations and also this in turn leads to a new form of insecurity whereby people are hugely worried about the platform's algorithms. They don't understand how the algorithms work, they don't know what, what's going to happen, but they're going to have a massive uh, impact on their livelihood and their ability to make an income. So, for example, one worker explained how it's the be-all and end-all. If you dip below 90%, then it would be really hard to recover. It's a worry. You don't know how the algorithm works, so people don't really know then how to manage their reputation. Another worker explained how you don't always know why your rating has dropped because there are so many factors and they, the platform, don't tell you why. And this insecurity and precarity then leads people to undertake unpaid labor. So people are so worried that they're going to be given a bad rating by the client, they will uh, work for free. So for example, clients often deviate from the agreement. I felt like I had to go along with what they wanted as if I didn't, they'd give me a bad review. And we also find similar things in the, in the local gig economy where Uber drivers are offering people free bottles of water, you know, doing a lot of emotional labor because they're so afraid that they're going to be given a bad rating. But in the face of this new form of insecurity, what we also find is that people are coming together to create community uh, to support each other, particularly through the use of social media. And these uh, groups that people are forming, nearly everybody we've interviewed across projects has, has used social media groups, are to offer each other support and help. So things like warn each other of bad clients, uh, ask for, a help, for help when a client doesn't pay them, uh, to uh, ask, try and work out what they should be charging clients, and also learn new skills and support each other in learning those skills. So kind of the existing communities and organization is really focused on support and help. But what we also find is a desire amongst workers for stronger forms of organization which are able to represent workers' interests and most importantly to counter the power that platforms have over their lives. So for example, one worker explained how we need some sort of protection and representation because otherwise the platform can just choose to ignore us. And another worker explained how a union of some sort, I think it's important to have that, because right now, we freelancers, we don't have many rights. 
and another worker explained how a trade union or something like this. So you can have a certain kind of arbitration with the platform. But we don't just find this desire for collective organization amongst people who are non-employees, who are, who are classified as self-employed, in the eyes of the law are seen as being an independent business, but, but desire to be part of a, a trade union. We also find some embryonic forms of uh, collective voice. So this dependency on the platforms means that the platforms can engage in rent-seeking behavior. So, for example, this was one of the largest platforms. They merged with, the, with an, one of the other largest platforms, and then quite quickly, quite soon afterwards, they doubled the fees that workers had to pay them for all of their gigs, from 10% to 20%. So everything that the worker earned, 20% of that had to go to the, the platform, and that, that was a doubling. And so the workers responded by thousands of workers from around the world, targeting the platform with so critical social media posts on the platform's own forum, but also creating this, uh, this uh, petition, which has this nice Mr. Burns uh, uh, meme. And so luckily, we, we happened to be interviewing uh, some of these workers whilst this was going on, and 35 of them had engaged in this form of collective this form of voice. And so we asked them why, if you're a, a self-employed, you're an entrepreneur, you're a business, according to the law, using the business, business, another business's service, why are you kind of attacking them on, on, on social media? Why don't you just use the services of another business? Is that not, would that not be a more professional thing to do for a business? And people explained, like, this was just an outlet for their collective outrage, rage, and what they were really hoping was not for any kind of, uh, kind of business response, uh, kind of in a professional sense, but they hoped that it would build up to collective pressure, which uh, would force the platform to change its decision. But people weren't naive. They recognized that posting on social media it wasn't a very effective channel for their voice, but they don't have these forms of collective organization that they desire. So this is the only vo channel for their voice which currently uh, exists. So, for example, a worker explained how I decided to protest and raise my voice, express my discontent. Another worker said, there was outcry. People were getting angry on the forums. No, we don't like this. It's not fair. And just adding a voice to their million other voices, it was a way of protesting. And finally, a worker said what he was trying to do was voice out what I felt. You read all the posts, and as you read each each post, you feel, you see all the anger that's building up in each freelancer that's posting. So this was really a collective experience, uh, not kind of some individual voice. So I think to conclude, what we find is that platforms are trans transforming the labor relations of non-employees, people who were previously considered uh, self-employed. And that's creating a desire amongst these people for collective uh, organization which can counter the power of platforms because they become dependent on platforms. But they're not interested in collective organization for, uh, for collective bargaining with, with clients, so traditional forms of unionism. What they want is a voice towards this platform, not their clients. But I think most importantly, these experiences of insecurity and dependency and precarity 
exist across freelance occupations and industries. And so in the past, when there's been union, unions of freelancers, they've been focused on specific industries. So, for example, uh, journalism. Whereas these are common experiences across uh, freelancers who use these platforms. And we also find these embryonic expressions of collective voice. And I think also importantly, people recognize that they're not necessarily the most effective forms of voice. And so I think all this adds up to is a lot of potential for freelancer unions, for unions to start organizing people who are non-employees. And I think in the local gig economy, where there's less barriers to collective action and organization, we've seen kind of a similar process with Deliveroo and Uber, where these networks that which exist have enabled workers to come together and take uh, collective action and link up with uh, trade unions, but again, not focused on clients or the, the shops that the Deliveroo riders are, are delivering food from, but aimed towards the platform. So that's where I'll end. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, we now are going to hear from Letitia. started by breaking some equipment. It's not nice. <laughs> um, so hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here today. I'm here to speak to you about the unbundling of jobs and the future of work. And to speak about the future of work, obviously, I'm going to speak about the past first. Um, and the, the way I'm going to start is that when we think about work and jobs, we still have one model in mind and one very compelling model that's quite recent, but it's the 20th century. It's the model of the Fordist job, and that's the one we can't get rid of. Um, and um, even though, even at the time, in the 1950s or 1960s, it's not a model that concerned every worker. In fact, it didn't, didn't even concern a majority of workers. But that's the one that's shaped our institutions. It's shaped our imagination when we, um, when we speak of jobs and work. And the Fordist model relied on a bargain, a very powerful bargain, division of labor and subordination, obedience, in exchange for a bundle of benefits, a bundle of benefits which included, obviously, money, healthcare, uh, a pension, provable solvency with a payslip so that you could buy a house and a car or rent a house, the promise of stability and the promise of, of upwards mobility, the promise of constant enrichment, a sense of agency in one's life, um, social identity, political representation through powerful unions, etc., etc. The list goes on and on. Now, the thing is, this bundle, this, those jobs, um, have been unbundled, or the unbundling of those jobs have, has been going on uh, for about four decades now, so long before the internet. Um, it started, um, some of the reasons for this unbundling include 
globalization and the emergence of low-wage co competition, de-industrialization and the emergence of new forms of organizations, the rise of automation, the decline of labor unions, fin the financialization of the economy, uh, which led to the end of job security, and last but not least, the digital revolution. That's really for about 10 years, and it started 30 years before. So today, new, new jobs, uh, and even, well, all jobs, are less and less coupled with the traditional benefits of the industrial age. Um, let me illustrate that with, a, um, with a, a fact about the USA. The number one employer in the US was, in the 1960s, was GM. And the typical GM employee had an excellent pension, healthcare, et cetera, the whole bundle, and a good one. Today's number one employer in the US is Walmart, and the second employer is uh, Amazon. So you have retail providing the, larger, the largest number of jobs in the US today. And the typical Walmart employee is more, well, more often a woman than a man, um, is often a part-time worker uh, with often no healthcare insurance, let alone a pension, a very low wage, no political representation, no unions, right? Walmart and Amazon have prevented unions from emerging, from appearing. So there is no form of organization in the retail industry. Uh, so that really is, this unbundling is really visible in, in that shift from GM to Walmart. Now, today we speak a lot about a crisis of work. Um, and, and the fact that you're so numerous today shows that you feel that there is something happening in the, in the world of work, if I may say so. Um, in fact, a lot of today's jobs still look a lot like the jobs of the industrial age, even if they are white-collar jobs, because there is still division of labor, and there is still subordination, um, and there is still you know, nine-to-five jobs, uh, and sometimes even when you could work remotely, you, can't, you were not allowed to. But now, you have to accept the possibility of downward mobility, uh, the lack of social protection, the lack of agency, lower wages, less money, no pension, etc., etc. So the bundle is gone, and that the bargain is is gone. And newcomers have no access to housing, uh, even though in the past it was part of the bundle. Now it's not part of the, of the bundle. Housing is um, is no longer accessible in large, in large cities. Uh, it boils down to increased geographic inequalities, and that's the number one problem in the world of work today. So we believed that with digital, you know, there would be no borders anymore, and people, I mean, at least creative class workers who have a computer can, with a Wi-Fi connection can work anywhere on a beach in Thailand or anywhere they like. And that, as a result, it, will, it would um, lower ge geographic inequalities. In, fi in fact, quite the reverse happened. Uh, inequalities are higher and higher, also because of digital, because there is an economic premium on density, uh, because of um, network effects, and because of talent clusters. So what's happened is that the real estate prices in the cities where all the economic activities are concentrated, like San Francisco, London, um, New York, Paris, etc. The real estate prices have gone up, have skyrocketed, and it's become impossible to have access to housing for those uh, new workers who come on the market. 
So the unbundling of jobs is profounding, is, is sorry, triggering a series of profound transformations. It's reshaping organizations, it's reshaping the, um, our institutions, um, school for example, school was modeled after and designed for factory workers. And now, you know, we're faced with what now? What new institution should we, should we create? And an institution that's very much affected is the, the world of HR, um, that I work with a lot, and HR people. Um, the unbundling of jobs is causing a lot of headaches among HR people. Uh, first reason is that their own jobs are being unbundled uh, as more and more tasks are automated. For example, pay is increasingly handled by software. Um, the second reason is that a lot of human resources, I mean actual human resources, no longer depend on HR departments. Um, freelancers, freelancers, suppliers, consultants, uh, uh, people who are not directly employed by the corporation in which they work, but who you know, work alongside uh, people who have different employers. So that makes it, that's also causing another headache for HR, because they don't directly control the actual human resources. And number three, they find it increasingly hard to recruit. Um, so they find it hard to recruit creative class workers, engineers, software developers, um, marketing people, all, all sort of creative people, because these um, workers behave like consumers of jobs. Um, they want to try it on and see if it fits and then if it doesn't, they move on to something else. Um, and so the HR people are forced to think in terms of branding, employer branding, they're treating workers like consumers, basically. They have to appeal to them. So they speak of, you know, the, the way in marketing people speak of the customer experience, well, in HR you speak of the employee experience, right, and the candidate experience. So the, the, the whole notion of you know, treating people like consumers has moved on to the world of HR. As for low-paid jobs, they also find it very hard to recruit for those jobs. Um, their view of things, as a bit of a caricature, they, um, you've, you've probably heard uh, people say, oh, people just don't want to work anymore, right? People don't want to work hard. They're young, they don't want to work hard anymore. <laughs> Uh, when in fact, of course, uh, these people could answer, people just don't want to pay you anymore. Um, uh, because the truth is that in relative terms and even in absolute terms, wages have gone down. Um, and while, as I said uh, before, housing prices have gone up, so that in cities like San Francisco, which is which where it's really particularly uh, an acute problem, it's become super hard to recruit for low-paid jobs, uh, even teachers. It's impossible to recruit teachers in San Francisco schools. So the schools who want to think out of the box and recruit great teachers, they have to provide housing in the bundle, so a wage and, and, a, and an apartment or a house. Um, same problem in, in London. A lot of jobs are not provided because they pay too little. And um, if, you, if you can't live in London, then you have to you know, commute for four hours a day or something like that, and it's just not worth it. Uh, and it, it's just economically not viable for those people. So um, and it turns out, in fact, that the Fordist bundle was an exceptional, historically, was an exceptional alignment of interests that benefited workers ex ex 
extraordinarily well. And when you look at the corporate contract, the way value is distributed among different stakeholders, there are four different stakeholders in a corporation. Um, the, the workers, the managers, the shareholders, and the consumers. You might add the suppliers and users and you know, but basically four main uh, stakeholders are those. And, and throughout history, there are different alliances between, uh, between different stakeholders. And in the Fordist age, the alliance put the shareholder last and workers and, and managers worked together to, so that value was distributed more evenly. And it can be accounted for by uh, powerful unions, by uh, political institutions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are lots of reasons. And today, that corporate contract has completely changed, and we've gone back to a period that looks a lot more like the late 19th century, and the work where the worker comes last uh, in terms of how the value is distributed. And that's easily visible in when you look at the figures about the levels of disparity of income uh, in in the in most of the Western world. Um, in, particularly in the US and in the UK, it's a little less, um, the disparity is not quite as high in, in uh, northern European countries. But all of that has made alienation, uh, you know, division of labor and subordination, a lot less acceptable. It's, it's made it also more visible. If there is no more bundle, if there is no more trade-off and bargain, why bother with the alienation? So that's why, so, so I believe that's why there is so much talk today of bullshit jobs. Some of you may have heard of um, David Graeber's uh, recent book, David Bullshit Jobs, A Theory, um, about burnout, about bore out, about brownout, and the expectations of millennials, right? There's a, a title like that in the press every day, even though I don't really believe that the expectations of millennials are much different from the expectation of everyone else's of everyone else, um, but that's another subject. Uh, last but not least, uh, digital automation and AI have changed workers' expectations. That's so that the, um, the way they view work is different. Because if machines can do the repetitive work, um, then workers would rather go back to human work. And what is human work? Um, it's obviously work that requires empathy but it's also work that relies on the values of craftsmanship, autonomy, responsibility, and creativity. There is no one best way in the Taylorist sense of the word, only unique individual ways to do a job. And that's the strongest aspiration of all, and that's, that's shared by all generations. For example, in the world of um, computer science, I'm sure that I'm not going to speak about your subject, uh, software developers uh, have started a movement around software craftsmanship um, and uh, trying to reinvent work and, and, and find inspiration in, in movements of the past, like the arts and crafts movement, for example. Um, that's why also Matthew Crawford's book uh, was such a, a success. It struck a sensitive chord when he made the case for working with your hands. And there's a whole group of new... Um, artisans in, in a lot of Western cities. Um, to go back to what Alex said about platforms, and I largely agree with most of what he said, except that um, I would say that the 
again, the unbundling started long before platforms and uh, a lot of internal activities like cleaning services, right, the work of cleaning women, for example, um, have been externalized, outsourced for about 40 years. And the culprits in that movement are the strategy consultants of the 60s and 70s and 80s that said uh, to corporations, you need to focus on your core business and you know, let other companies do the rest. And that's led to this fissured workplace where alongside each other, you have people with different employers, different working conditions, but they should be colleagues, they should be a part of the team in every sense of the word, but they uh, have very different uh, conditions. So internet platforms have accelerated the trend, but they've not, um, they've also made information more transparent and uh, compared to traditional outsourcing and old-fashioned precarity, uh, platform precarity is still very small in comparison. It's not only very small, but you know, quantitatively speaking, it's even marginal. And 99% of the people who live in precarity today are salaried workers with extremely low wages and no security, no pension, no etc. The novelty, so the novelty is not precarity, the novelty is a further unbundling of work with the rise of amateurs. Uh, a lot of these people supplement their income, their low revenues, with digital gigs, and they have. Um, they're making it harder for professionals because uh, suddenly the professionals have this new competition uh, from online work. And it's unbundling our definition of workers. We think of workers and as, you know, we focus on primary activity when in fact with platforms there are a lot of secondary activity. And, and the whole definition of worker should be revised. In fact, work can be the sum of a few hours by lots of people and not just, you know, real workers who work from nine to five, about 40 hours a week. So to conclude, um, the challenge today is not to prevent new forms of work from emerging because the unbundling has already happened. The challenge is to help them create a new bundle, um, create a new safety net from them, for them to access housing, social protection, education, Uh, create new forms, as Alex said, of organization, but I'm speaking here as much about Walmart as I am about platforms. Um, and, and, and the difficulty is that there's a struggle between insiders and outsiders, because the insiders, the incumbents, those who still enjoy the benefits of the old bundle, they don't really want things to change. Uh, and uh, the, the challenge will be to make it possible for everyone to 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 renegotiate for themselves a new bundle um, so that work can come not with division of labor and, uh, and obedience, but with self-fulfillment and autonomy. That's it. Thank you. Uh, hi everyone, so uh, I'm not actually an expert on work, 
I, I'm a computer scientist, as you heard, so uh, I'll be talking actually not even about the whole computer science because it's such a big area. Uh, more precisely, I'll be talking about human-like robots because even robotics is a huge field, so there is no way I can actually convey all the possibilities and all the past, present and future of robotics in terms of their relevance for work, so I'll focus on one specific aspect, which is human-like robots, because uh, I work on creating emotionally and socially intelligent systems and applications, and hopefully at least our aim is to, <laughs> to make life uh, better. So I'm, I'm hoping to give you a bit of a positive picture uh, with that respect. Um, so uh, the field of social robotics and human-robot interaction is concerned with creating, designing uh, robots uh, that can engage people for different applications, different areas and different contexts. And within that, my goal of talking about human-like robots is, unlike what Alex and Leticia said, you do not have access yet to human-like robots at your workplace. So you haven't really experienced them at your workplace or even at home. So what you have is probably some sort of a smart AI, that's the term that's being used a lot nowadays. Perhaps you have Amazon Alexa or, or something similar or mobile phone applications, but you don't have this physical embodiment of robots in your houses or workplaces. So what I'll try to do is, uh, I'll try to demystify a little bit the human-like robots because you mostly hear from the media what uh, these robots will be doing. They'll be stealing your jobs and, you know, they'll take over the world and there's this uh, amazing intelligence coming and they'll surpass our intelligence and there's all this scary picture. So this is what I'll try to do to demystify a little bit the human-like robots. So in the human-robot interaction, when we talk about these robots, there are different levels. So the first one is autonomous. So you could think of this as the most advanced ones. When we say autonomous, the idea is that the robot is designed and equipped uh, in such a way that they have sensors like cameras and microphones, and then they're able to perceive, analyze certain aspects like could be location, could be people recognizing faces, and so on. And then they can do, in response to that, some sort of uh, action so they can take some decisions. So this is autonomous robotics. And there's, of course, a lot of potential. Uh, so you could use these robots for learning and education, particularly uh, with children that have special needs, like autistic kids. And now they have been started to be uh, implemented and used as guides in museums and shopping malls, even for therapeutic stimulation for elderly care. Uh, and also, this is more futuristic, the idea is that they start becoming more like companions and coaches. Particularly this flying one that is really futuristic is not really available yet, but the idea is you could even have a personal, uh, you know, a fitness instructor that's flying above you and tells you or helps you do things. So there are different uh, views about that. So this is one example. It was an EU project where uh, children that with uh, diabetes actually would learn how to take care of themselves by taking care of a childlike uh, looking robot. So these are the sort of potentials human-like and social robotics is bringing. So this is autonomous. Another level is teleoperated robots. What that means is Instead of having a fully autonomous robot that does what I just mentioned in terms of analyzing, interpreting, and then uh, responding or acting, here the robot doesn't do things on its own. It's just being used as a physical embodiment, and there is actually a human operator that operates it. And here I'm trying to, this is from a demo uh, we had, uh, I think, two years ago. So here you see basically whatever the human is doing, the robot is just replicating 
uh, with its uh, body, hopefully in real time. And the human is wearing a virtual headset, so they can see in terms of robot's eyes, so wherever they're looking, this is what the robot will be doing, and they'll be seeing through robot's cameras. So this is teleoperation. And of course, it also has applications. Uh, because it's an alternative means of telecommunication, uh, particularly nowadays, as you also heard from the previous speakers, people are not collocated, so we are in different places. And when we have meetings or we try to interact, sometimes the engagement level or trust level is not as high as it would be when we have face-to-face -face interaction. So having this sort of telepresence can help, for instance, for remote home care or even telenursing. So there are applications of this telepresence robotics as well. The other level is Wizard of Oz, so I'm going from sort of very uh, intelligent to downgrading uh, to various uh, aspects of human-like robots. Wizard of Oz means it's mock-up interactivity. So there is a physical robot, as you see there, and there is a user. The user is interacting with the robot, thinking that everything the robot does is autonomous and is, you know, smart and intelligent. But in fact, there is actually behind the robot somewhere else um, a coder or a programmer or even a, a human Typing, for instance, if it's like uh, having a chat, the operator would be typing the responses. So the robot doesn't actually do anything. It's just sort of replicating what the person is typing. So it's good to have this categorization when you're trying to demystify human-like robots. So for instance, robots have been used even for arts. So I don't know if you attended this. I've seen this theater play in Cambridge. I think it was last year. It's called Spilliken. So the idea here is a computer scientist creates a robot programs for, her, for his uh, wife with Alzheimer's so that when he passes away, the robot can remind her things and help her and so on. And then another one was robot. This is dance performance. This was in London in the Barbican, I think also a year and a half or two years ago. So for instance, here you can start questioning which type of robots are these or how is the operation happening? Do you think they're autonomous, they're teleoperated or Wizard of Oz? So start asking those questions. I'm not going to dispute any, any of their uh, uh, application areas there, but it's, it's good to start thinking because there are many challenges in this area. So the first is obviously uh, when we create social robots, we try to uh, imbue them with what we know about human-human interaction because that's the example we have. And in human-human interaction, there, there's a lot happening. Here you see from the image I put there, there is the sender of the signals and the receiver end of the signals. And there are many signals we are sending in terms of non-verbal social signals, the way we use face, the way we orient our body, the way we speak, the way we pose, the way we express, all of these are constantly being interpreted on the receiver end. And that helps the, even with things like persuasion, power, you know, interpreting whether the person likes me or not, all of these things are happening all the time, whether we are conscious or unconscious about it. So when we talk about human-like robots and we start replacing the sender or receiver end with the robot, obviously, there are many, many challenges. And uh, this relates to also creating believable robots. Because to be able to use the full potential of these robots, obviously, humans, for various contexts and applications, need to believe in them. And when I put here a definition, when we say believable, it means credible or somehow convincing or realistic. How do we create believable agents and robots? So appearance is very important, and it can be very mechanical looking animal looking, so zoomorphic, or very human looking. But also behavior is important, so the behavior needs to match this appearance. Here you see a seal looking robot called Paro that has been used for therapeutic stimulation. So when the person pats, the, the robot creates sounds like purring, so similar to a seal, so the behavior is matching. And here you see more uh, human-like robots 
the appearance is like a child, so obviously the behavior is expected to be that way as well. But beyond that, actually emotional expressivity is key in believability, and this goes back to Disney. So Disney cartoons, the way it has been created and the way we believe in them, and here I quote, it has been the portrayal of emotions that has given the Disney characters the illusion of life. So this is in a way inspiration also for creating intelligent or socially intelligent robots. Um, so emotionality or emotional intelligence helps increase believability, helps with engaging the user and the humans, but also can help with personalization and adaptation to the user, and that's why it's important. Of course, another challenge is we bring stereotypes from our interactions with humans because we have mental models about the world and what we know best is how we interact with each other, so human-human interactions. So when it comes to the way we interact with technology, we bring these mental models uh, there as well. And we have stereotypes. For instance, if there is robotic appearance, we find that to be less trustworthy. So, and if it's more robotic behavior, so it's moving a bit slower or more mechanical, Again, we attribute less emotionality to those, uh, to those machines. There are other challenges, for instance, the way we perceive robots is very task-dependent, so it depends what they are programmed to do or how they are designed, for what purposes. But also, appearance matters beyond what I mentioned as well. Here you see three different robots. One is child-looking, the other one people perceive as more feminine-looking, and then you see one that's also bigger in size, perhaps more masculine looking. So all of these things actually would affect the way people perceive. And if you want to override these stereotypes, you might need strong behavioral cues, just like it is for human-human interaction as well. So I also would like to touch a bit uh, with respect to myth and reality, because a lot of the people actually believe robots are much more capable than they really are. And that's because what I mentioned, because you don't have direct access to them. You only see them through TV and newspapers and very exaggerated uh, news. So this actually is a slide by Ben Russell last year. The Science Museum had an exhibition on 500 years of history of robotics. I don't know if you managed to attend, but Ben Russell was the curator. And we were speakers last year in a conference. So what he said is, because they had a notebook at the end of the exhibition, people would write their comments about the exhibition. And everyone was so disappointed when they saw this was the current sort of latest technology in terms of robotics. Because they were watching sci-fi movies and, you know, all these various uh, series, and then they were writing, is this really what's available? You must be kidding us, and, and so on. So he was saying, actually, they, they couldn't really convince the public that was what was available as the latest robotics. So they had to change a bit the flavor of the exhibition to try to talk to people rather than just, than just let them go around. This is another one, so <laughs> uh, you might have seen. Uh, I think it was on 16th of October, not long ago. Uh, a first robot appeared in the UK Parliament um, and uh, was talking about the future of AI in the classroom, apparently. So this, of course, um, has been criticized immediately. And here I'm quoting again from uh, BBC. So it was... Professor Woodridge, the head of AI at Oxford University, said it was an embarrassing gimmick and it gives AI a bad name because when you don't explain how these things are done and if it's just prescripted, which was the case with this robot, people really believe, I mean, of course, it's in the parliament, it's talking there, so you really believe this is the capability of these robots. So it's important, actually, to know. Similarly, with Sophia, the robot, you might have heard people were trying to even talk about giving, uh, giving citizenship to Sophia, but again, has been criticized by major uh, people in AI as Wizard of Oz, now that you know the terminology. <laughs> uh, 
And there are other myths. These are mostly from my talks, public talks. These are from uh, the questions I gathered people were asking. So one is, we don't need robots. We could even just use graphical user interfaces or virtual agents. But the reality is physical presence really matters, particularly for child-robot interaction and even for elderly care because physicality helps with touch, for instance, which is very important, for instance, for children. Another perception is robots should not be designed to look human-like because people believe this actually creates deception. But the reality is we are very good at anthropomorphizing things, even though it doesn't look actually human-like. And this is one example. It's an experiment from 1944 where you see it, uh, it was a study of apparent behavior and how we do attribution and judgment of others. Just look, there are only two, three things there. So you have two rectangles and one circle. And you start thinking who is the bad guy and who is the good one protecting who and so on. So this is one example of how we do actually anthropomorphizing even uh, simple things. Another perception is robots should not be portrayed as expressing emotions because robots cannot feel. But the reality is we always try to recreate what humans are doing. But perhaps, um, you know, the emotional intelligence in robots needs to be somewhat different. So, for instance, the way it's being used for current applications, emotional intelligence is this way. For Skype, for instance, when they apologize when things go wrong, or for Facebook when the page is not available. So this is still part of emotional intelligence. And we don't really know how it would look like in, in robots. And perhaps they don't have to have all the emotionality, for instance, jealousy. So maybe we can make them a bit more altruistic. So it's, it's difficult to envisage exactly how these things will be. And I will conclude with the way forward. And by this, I'm trying to at least give some uh, sort of positive things um, and try to sort of mention uh, how this would relate to work. <laughs> so this is uh, quoted quite a lot when it, talk, when it comes to talking about uh, you know, how uh, we will be affected. So I'll just read. There are only two industries that refer to their customers as users high-tech and illegal drugs. So what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Basically, um, at the moment, people have not fully or really have become uh, participants in tech development. So people are always users. So you become at the receiving end of things. So by the time you receive it, things have been created, which means you haven't actively participated. You haven't had your say in that. And that's why it actually is not probably exactly how it should be. So what we need to do is, of course, inform and empower people. So that's the reason I'm doing this talk, and it's great that you're attending, so you are now more informed. But ideally, uh, the public should be, uh, should be made more technology literate. And I don't know exactly how this needs to be done, but this is definitely a need. The other one is robots need to become more accessible to the public. Again, I cannot tell you in which form and how exactly, but this is another need so that people can test, experiment, and even code, so they actually know exactly how things are. And of course, there is a lot happening. So this is one example uh, from a friend of mine from Sydney, Australia. She's not an IT person, but they started already uh, worrying about how their children 
will survive in a society that's almost fully automated. So they started having workshops. So by showing this, I just, uh, in a way, I'm suggesting you could start doing grassroots sort of things like, you know, discuss and, and start asking questions that could help with help um, uh, directing governance. And again, we need to find jobs that they can't do and train people to do them. So here's a, a quote again to reinvent education. And finally, lifelong learning probably is the way forward. So instead of identifying ourselves with one particular static job, I am a mechanic or I am this, I'm that. Um, the, the envisioned future seems to be we need to have this lifelong learning. So, um, and then robots will become actually, hopefully, uh, they will be collaborating with us and we will have this co-evolution and creating a bundle of skills and integrating robots into our daily life as uh, co-participants rather than taking over and you know, surpassing our intelligence and, and get rid of us. So hopefully this gives you a bit of a positive picture. Thank you very much. Now we're going to hear from Madalena. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you for allowing me to join you in the very last minute. Um, I feel really honored to share the panel with um, these experts and also to having the opportunity to talk to this amazing audience. Um, so I'm not an expert in digital work either, um, uh, but um, I thought I could bring in some issues about my uh, doctoral research uh, where we can draw some parallels with um, the concerns that have been raised here about uh, the insecurity and intensification sometimes um, uh, that uh, the digital, digitalization of work uh, brings to human beings and the uh, insecurity and, and other um, harmful experiences that informal work um, has ever um, produced in, in more developing contexts. So um, my work is mainly contextualized in Central American countries, um, in Panama, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala and Honduras. And I focus on how good or bad jobs are in those countries uh, from a multidimensional and um, a worker-centered perspective. So that is uh, taking into account multiple dimensions of work beyond just the, the salary level, or uh, which is the, the, the thing that we most commonly look at, and, and also confirming that those different and multiple aspects um, of what we could say constitute a good uh, job, um, how will they positively, are positively and objectively correlated with workers' health and well-being? Um, so in turn, the, the list of um, job aspects and characteristics um, um, I chose to consider uh, w that are constitutive of a, what, what we call a good job um, derives, I mean, it's not um, a, an idea original for me, but derives from the, from the literature and, and specifically from Professor uh, Green's uh, model of job quality, which includes basically seven, seven concepts, seven scales. One is earnings, of course, the, the, the level of uh, pay that you can receive from, from paid work. Um, uh, job prospects and career progression, feeling um, a certain level of job security and that you can advance in your, in your uh, job. Um, also, the quality of your working time, how 
conducive is your working time to have a, a greater work-life balance, um, not to work in uh, to um, unsocial uh, hours like during weekends or nights or having a bit of control, um, choosing your own schedules uh, to work, etc. It also considers the quality of the physical environment. So um, how exposed are you to environmental risk, um, ergonomic risk, um, um, painful um, um, or harmful uh, things to, to, to your body. And also the quality of the social environment, which means how supportive is uh, the environment you work in um, and, and whether, you're, whether this, uh, it's a workplace free of, um, of um, abusive behaviors or attitudes from your um, colleagues, work colleagues or managers, supervisors, etc. It also considers the intensity um, uh, of your job. I mean, how, how often do you need to work to tight deadlines or at a very high speed? And also the, the discretion, the level of autonomy you can exert in your job, um, whether you can decide the order of the task or, or, or the pace of, of work you want to have, or etc. So, um, certain level of control. So all of these things um, um, we can. I mean. Uh, seven different variables that we can say um, they're essential to measure how good or bad jobs are. Um, there's an ongoing debate, of course, if we could include as well how meaningful your job is within this um, like minimum model of whatever we are going to include in, 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 uh, in job quality issues. So I measured this, um, all these variables um, using a, um, a survey that was um, run for the first time in, in Central America, the, the, the first um, Central American Survey on Working Conditions and Health, which is very similar to the European Working Conditions Survey, if you heard about it. So it was very interesting uh, doing this exercise because I, I could compare uh, the quality of jobs in, in such different contexts as Central America and European countries. Um, and the results of the, re the research broadly show that we, what, we con uh, what we consider to be a good job um, in a range of European countries um, is not necessarily a Western-centered perspective. It's much, actually much more global than, than you could think. Um, and similar to what is considered to be a good job in Central American countries too. Um, so now there might be, of course, uh, some uh, perhaps cultural or developmental differences on how each aspect, how each of these components um, is um, placed into, within the hierarchy of, of needs that we want to meet from, uh, in, in the job. But, but if we look at the set of uh, dimensions, it's, it's more or less the same. So we're talking about the same things when we talk about um, how good or bad is my job. Um, so uh, on, on my work, I'm, I'm also, of course, very interested in how can we make uh, the relationship between work life and well-being more visible and, and catch the attention of policymakers um, through this kind of comparative measures. Um, and, and I believe that these results broadly contribute to that, to validate a cross-nationally, cross-culturally uh, model that quantifies how good or bad jobs are. So um, on top of that, um, I, I also argue in, in, on, on my research that this kind of standardized and multidimensional measures of, of good jobs have a great potential and, and also advantages from a public policy perspective, um, and also in, in, in the context of these debates, um, because it helps uh, to blur the line in, in the context where I'm working. It helps to blur the line between what we often call the formal sector and the informal sector, uh, which traditionally 
have been associated to formal jobs or the good jobs and informal jobs uh, or jobs in the formal sector of the bad quality jobs. Um, and my research actually showed that there's a great overlap um, between both sectors in the um, quality of jobs they, they provide or they create. Um, so uh, what I could, I mean, by, by this, I do not say that the quantifying the amount of informal work or the size of the informal sector in, in each country is, is useless. I think uh, the concept is still really important to uh, measure the, the quality of our welfare states or, or tax revenue. But what I try to, to um, highlight with this uh, result is that this formal-informal divide is not very useful to focus on, on actually how good jobs are from, from the workers' perspective, from their well-being and health perspective. Um, so, uh, well, self-employment, freelancing, outsourced work has been rather the norm, as you may know, um, in, in developing countries. And um, it has been the lack of, uh, the lack of tradition and employment and, and the, this lack of the absence of this social contract, it's also, I mean, it's not an exception, as Leticia said. I mean, um, I would say that the, this other traditional form of uh, employment, formal employment, has been rather the exception in many uh, parts of the world, as it has been in, in, in Latin America. But that should not, of course, stop us from um, trying to measure how good or bad those um, self-employed uh, uh, jobs or independent jobs are, right? Um, so um, I think this background just uh, help us to um, take a stance uh, to, 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 uh, for this debate. I mean, um, a specific standpoint to discuss about the future of work um, amid extensive, of course, automation. So considering the rapid changing of the nature of work in developed economies, um, what will be the standards to measure how good or bad these new jobs are? Um, and approaching job quality, as the one I, I um, succinctly um, described, can help us identifying the aspects of the gig economy, um, platform economy, uh, platform jobs that can be particularly harmful, um, and also praise those dimensions that can have actually a positive um, effect on workers' well-being. So we can probably think that some of these new digital jobs provide workers with higher flexibility, better work-life balance, uh, job satisfaction, but of course the evidence um, about the trade-offs is it's also abundant. So um, I think just having this framework um, uh, help us to be clearer in, in the way we're going to measure um, how promising or pessimistic is the, the future. Um, Latin American workers find themselves, of course, probably in a situation of high risk with a higher automation, um, considering that a great proportion of workers that um, uh, but already working in reduced formal sector, perform unskilled and routine tasks, um, which are very easily replaceable uh, by, by AI. But there, so there's a huge challenge um, um, to upskill the Latin American workforce, to seize the growth opportunities that uh, automation offers. But a more optimistic um, narrative is that there are human skills that machine, machines um, can't offer. Uh, probably um, 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 Haji, Haji's um, presentation would uh, challenge that assertion, but 
Um, one would think that things like soft skills, creativity, empathy, collaboration, um, resilience or, or judgment, etc., I mean, uncertainty, I'd have all um, skills that, um, on the one hand, are um, easily present uh, among the Latin American workforce, and on the other hand, are not limited, limited to upper um, classes or to, to the richer uh, population. So there is, one can say, there is a certain opportunity to equalize um, um, or to redistribute um, uh, social integration and opportunities. And from a similar optimistic perspective, um, what might be interesting to think about is how much resources could, could this extended automation free up resources, um, uh, how much resources could free up from governments, um, thus helping to strengthen their welfare states and contributing to a redistribution from, from another perspective. Um, the pressure of integration, it would be less down to the individual probably, and the amount of working hours they can start, it could, um, um, I mean, it would be less dependent on that. It could free up hours of work to spend on highly meaningful activities such as caring, voluntary work, creative arts. And, and by this, I'm not necessarily aligning with the post-work discourse um, or, or the well-known argument about the non-work era. Um, uh, but I think, um, I think my, my proposal, my, my question is a bit less naive than that. I, I do think that work is still central um, and, and, and the world with, without work is not um, uh, very feasible. But, but it's, it's, um, I think it's a good way to start thinking about what are the things we're going to demand I mean, in, on a minimum scale from our jobs and what are the things we're going to uh, leave down to the state to provide us or to find other sources to, to, um, to provide it. So... Um, that's uh, what I think I could just um, contribute to this um, panel, but looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much to all our speakers for some really interesting thoughts, some positive, some negative. So it's now over to the audience. I'm conscious that we've done a lot of talking and hopefully we'll give you a chance to make comments or questions. May I ask if you wouldn't mind saying who you are um, and keeping questions relatively short so that we can collect a few. There's one, two down here, if we may. Any on this side? So we'll take one, two, and the third question there. Sorry, do you mind just waiting for the microphone? There you go. <laughs> Hello. Perfect. Um, in all I've heard so far, um, we, we talk about relationships between um, humans and work and humans and robots at work and that kind of thing. Um, but um, the th human, humans are very diverse. And I was sat here thinking to myself, well, why doesn't that matter to me in terms of the large speaker? Um, social um, impact of, of your job. Um, and there was a great list of stuff, pay, prospects, progress and security, etc., all of which was some kind of bundle in, in terms of um, the third speaker's, um, sorry, the second speaker's bundle. Um, it seems to me that we, all the time we try to make the idea of the future fit with humanity the way it is um, and the way we see it ourselves, but we're also shifting, particularly in AI. Um, people will have a different 
um, reaction towards robotics as robotics um, comes towards us. I already think that I will feel safer in a car which does not have a human being running it because basically human beings irrational make the same mistakes over and over again. And if you've got some AI running it, somebody will change this computer software as soon as somebody's killed by a machine to make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay. Got the hand I think there was someone behind you who had a question. Yeah. I just wanted to ask Hattie J a question. My name's Kate. Um, you know that robot that appeared in the parliamentary committee, was that a Wizard of Oz thing going on there? So or allow, allow you to answer that briefly and then we can collect the questions. Thank you. Um, so, Hattie, do you want to answer that? Uh, so it, it, it was prescripted, not Wizard of Oz, but prescripted. So they actually planned exactly what they would be asking and then prescripted what the robot would be saying. So there's no, the way we are doing it right now with understanding. That's a bit stupid then, isn't it? Uh, it's a bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> Question there. Agreement. I think that um, lots of tasks and jobs are going to be automated away in the future, but ma far less agreement around whether more tasks and more jobs will be created in the future. There's one one view that says look at history and um, you know the industrial revolution automated lots of things, but lots more new jobs were created. And there's another view that this time it's different because we're going to automate away intelligent tasks, intellectual tasks, and there won't be much more for humans to do. So I just wanted to ask the panel whether there'll be um, more tasks and more work for humans to do in the future or whether we're moving towards a world with much less work being done by people. Okay, so we've got a comment, we've got a question. One more question, Any, there's a question over there. Lady in structure. Hi, um, I was just wondering with the shift of the stakeholders um, that it was at one point the worker um, having a good stake in the benefits of the company, and now it's more the shareholders. What created that um, more happy Fordist model, and what has progressed us to a less happy um, shareholder-focused model today? Okay, so let's have a go at answering some of those. Um, Alex, do you want to have a go at the first uh, question and perhaps incorporate the comment made by the gentleman about sort of people's reactions to AI? Mm. But fundamentally, industrial revolution... All the jobs are going to disappear. It turns out that wasn't quite the case. Why don't we think the same will be happening now? Yeah, I, I read recently that when we look at weaving, 98% of the tasks of weaving have been automated since the uh, 1900s. But more people are employed in weaving and the textile industry than ever, ever before. Because whether a technology kind of destroys jobs or creates more jobs, really depends on demand. And so technology doesn't just uh, reduce the amount of labor that goes into something. It increases productivity, so increases wealth, but in also in increases quality. And so if people are richer and there's more of a good, a good product, people will buy more of it. So, you know, 98% of the tasks of making our clothes might have been automated, but we wear a huge amount of clothes now. Obviously, that has environmental impacts and so that's really the question is like how much can how much more consumption can the world uh world sustain but under the current economic model of of uh kind of demand uh, con consumption driven capitalism i don't think it will lead to any uh, a loss of jobs like some jobs will be automated but new jobs will be created and really that's uh yeah the idea that less uh 
that it's open, this is new because new because now it's highly skilled jobs that can be automated. I think that's a false understanding of history. When we look at a job like an architect, deciding the stresses and strains of a material would have been hugely complex, and now a computer uh, can do that. So it's something which has has uh, kind of been going on for a long time as skilled skilled tasks have also been been automated. I think on the question of kind of Views oh, give, yeah. um, <laughs> do you want to yeah, just, just one word about what Alex just said, which I completely agree with, is that um, there's never been more work than today. Uh, I mean, many more people work today than 50 years ago with, you know, a high activity um, percent activity rates among women, etc. So uh, on a global scale, there is more work now than ever before. Um, so that tends to um, kind of... <laughs> Yeah. So, Letitia, can you ask for the um, Yes, because I, um, I was so focused on the previous question, <laughs> I heard that, uh, partly the question when I heard the word shareholder, but um, maybe... So what, what led to the shift from uh, being focused on shareholders, 19th century, more focused on workers and managers, and now we're going back to a greater focus on shareholders, in brief terms? And quick, a uh, very quick answer would be the... the financialization of the economy and the emergence of the financial sector. Um, that probably is the single driver of that shift in the corporate contract. So that would start, it started slowly in the 1980s and amplified in the, in the 90s. Okay, thank you. There was a question that jumped up here. Question down there. Any other questions? Hi. Um, so in regards of future and the future of work, and you spoke about a little bit about it uh, at the end, speaking of children and what we should, you know, the skills we should uh, give them. I was wondering, you know, if you have any examples, what we should educate, you know, the future. Um, Good question. Future <laughs> speaking as an educationalist, great question. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? A question there, and then one here. Hello. Um, I've read the manifesto which uh, basically said because all jobs are going to be automated sooner or later, we should give like a universal basic income to everybody so that they can still feel useful and contribute to the economy. And um, I want to to know what, what do you think about it? This was... Uh, I don't. I don't know the name in English. Unfortunately, it, is, it was about accel yeah. the acceleration of fully full automation, and um, yeah, I just wanted. Yeah, no, and from, and from anyone who would like to answer, this is not directed to any specific speaker. Thank you. It's being discussed actually in the Economist and quite a wide variety of uh, newspapers, sort of considering this this universal benefit. So we'll come to that. And final question, I think. Hi, my name is Chris Moore. Um, my question is, do you see a possible future where the actual design of organizations becomes automated? Okay, so we've got two big questions around what should we teach our children? Uh, should we have a universal credit? And your point, Hitachi, do you want to uh, start? Uh, so um, <laughs> I don't work in terms of children educating children, so for me it's difficult to say exactly. So I raised the points there as an example. Uh, as I said, one of my friends actually started these workshops to discuss with parents. So what I tried to make the point was 
uh, we need to actually discuss and figure out. So I don't have a golden set of, you know, list uh, of uh, rules and, and what we should be teaching them. But uh, ideally, we should be teaching them these lifelong learning skills. So meaning not to identify themselves as one specific static thing, you know, oh, I, do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to be this or do you want to be that? Instead, I think flexibility and really this lifelong learning is the way forward, meaning things might change and shift all the time. And in fact, it is happening with technology. Things are changing very fast now. So th this would be the initial way to start, but the discussion needs to create this. So I'm, I'm not an educational person in terms of children to tell you. So I don't know oh, if you have a comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a dreadful expression of teaching children to learn and that can be very facile and meaningless. Um, but fundamentally, uh, teaching young people that the world is moving fast enough that you need to think about upgrading your skills and changing your skills is probably the most important lesson. Before we talked about universal credit, which is, um, might not be from, sorry. Now that would, see, that's a Freudian slip there, I think. I've been thinking about that all week. Um, yes, universal income is this idea that in a world of precariousness and uh, variable income, uh, we need to do more to protect people and that even if we have robots doing everything, we still need to make people feel valued and, and there might be a universal income that we all <coughs> sign up to. Um, the perspective from Latin yeah. America probably looks a bit different. Um, yeah, my, my answer to, I mean, the, the universal basic income has been highly debated um, nowadays. And uh, we were actually discussing about that last weekend in the seminar about the, uh, the social life of work um, with some people from... Uh, um, from the, from the university. And um, so there's some, um, it's very, um, I mean, people from the non-work um, thesis is very much in favor of this universal basic income um, uh, thesis. I would say that um, uh, we need to be careful of not um, um, understanding uh, the provision of a universal basic income with um, the removal of work altogether, of uh, non-work. Um, I think, of course, the universal basic income uh, provides some, some of the benefits that we're looking for, for from, from jobs, but not everything. I mean, a job is much more than the payment, as, as, as I try to explain. So um, it's about um, um, feeling accomplished in something, about um, um, having um, aspirations, uh, prospects, about um, having... Um, uh, the opportunity to balance work and non-work, um, uh, feeling safe, uh, etc., supported. So there are much, many other things provided uh, by jobs that are not covered simply by the economic aspect, which we call the universal basic income. So that, that, that would be my stance. Of course, I mean, um, there's a possibility of, of equalizing things a bit, but not everything. It can be not, replaced. Not the answer to everything, which is quite important. Yeah, add just a word about You want to add that, UBI? and also, if you can yeah, come sorry. back on the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just about UBI, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it's just a partial answer anyway, because, you know, what about healthcare and housing, et cetera, and education? And the, the highest cost today in a country like the US is healthcare. Healthcare is like 20% of the GDP. It's, 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 it's complete, um, it's impossible with even a thousand dollars a month or even a thousand five hundred dollars a month whatever the basic income is to cover that so it's it's uh, something that was that gained momentum with libertarians of, of, of in the completely fails to answer the basic questions like how housing and healthcare and education 
Did you want to come back on the question? Of the um, about organizations. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent question. I think to some extent, uh, some of the platforms, and for example, freelancers' platforms are already doing that uh, a little bit. Uh, and it um, kind of gives credit to the idea that we're sort of nearing the end of the firm in, a way, in many ways. Uh, and these platforms, like so freelancers' platforms, um, HR management platforms that basically coordinate uh, the, um, the work of you know, individuals who work in different places or, even, or who have different employers uh, and, and algorithms to optimize the management of, these, of, of this organization. So it's, I mean, with some of the platforms and software that's being used now, uh, it's partially happening. So I'm sorry. Oh, last question. <laughs> Up there. And then we're going to have to. Oh, is the lady there sitting right there? Yeah. Hi there. My name is Mary. Could you talk a little bit about the future of work in the context of environmental risk? So we literally have a minute. So, academics, this is your moment to be brief. <laughs> Alex, you can have a go. Um, yeah, I guess probably my main message from this, this session would be don't be afraid of kind of robots stealing your job be afraid of kind of things which are actually really happening which are, are the environmental breakdown of of the planet driven by kind of this uh, consumerist model of capitalism and uh, also be concerned about the massive inequality that exists which you can see is very correlated with the decline in the strength of of organized uh, organized labor um, I, I recommend the talk of Carlotta Perez um, she gave a couple of months ago called Green Growth. Um, so if you um, Google Carlotta Perez Green Growth on YouTube, and you'll find a beautiful YouTube video where she addresses that question. Basically, production work is not just about making physical things and throwing plastic into the ocean. It's also about teaching, caring for somebody, and growing doesn't mean, you know, polluting more. Not necessarily. It's the case today but it doesn't have to be okay so i'm not going to attempt to summarize that rather rich discussion but i would like to thank all the speakers for their contribution i think what we heard today was we shouldn't be quite as worried about robots as some people might have been that we shouldn't necessarily be worried about the destruction of jobs because probably new jobs will come along but what we should be worrying about is both the human inequalities that we're seeing in our society now not in the future and we should also be worrying about the consequences of a model that is built on economic growth with quite serious implications for what that means for the planet. Summary-ish. But thank you all very much. Thank you.